Well, good morning. Hope Fummer's going well for you. Uh, just curious, how many used the word Fummer this week? Okay, that was like a little... Chad, thank you, bro. Like a little... Just kind of wanted to see what kind of influence I had, so thanks for helping me out with that. Uh, no, not much. Uh, thank you for leading us, worship team. Uh, wow, what a, what a moment with God there, that last song. And so today we arrive at a new chapter in our journey towards freedom in Exodus. Yeah, you guys can go. <laughs> so how's Fummer going for you? No, it's kidding. We'll not start, restart. So we've been in this, we've been in this series called Journey to Freedom. Our ambition is to take steps forward, both individually and as a people, to learn how to live free. People who are actually learning how to live in such a way where we're doing what we want to do, not following a, a book of rules that we think somebody wrote for us. We're going to engage a passage in 19th chapter of the book of Exodus today. It's actually one of the most significant Old Testament passages in all of Scripture. It's not one that gets enough play, in, in my view. Because it describes a new development in the relationship between God and people, specifically His people. It's a development that actually helps us see ourselves more clearly as His people. And it's also a development that points to another development later. Of course, to God, it's not a new development. The vision that our text is going to expose this morning was in God's mind all along. It's nothing new for Him. This telling of the God and us relationship begins very, at the very beginning in Scripture of God creating, crafting, if you will, man and woman in His image and granting them the privilege and the responsibility of caring for His creation. Dominion, He called it. Have dominion. He entrusted stewardship to humanity, men and women, boys and girls. He granted them the privilege to be in this garden with God and then to take care of the garden. That was the whole point. God, from the beginning, has a vision of Mankind leading and serving in his world. God gave him dominion. He charged him to care for creation. God also commanded the man and woman to be fruitful and to multiply, to populate the earth, so to speak. They did pretty good there. But there was a condition in that that they would flourish in their role to care for as well as populate, as long as they were tethered in relationship to Him. As long as they were doing their lives with Him, not independently of Him. So He tested them, if you know the story, with a tree that symbolized obedience. So the stewardship God's giving, this is important to understand, is in the context of relationship with God. Of course, if you're familiar with the biblical story, you know that that did not go well. 
we, each of us, as well as those who've gone before us, have chosen an independent way, independent from God, a self-centered way, a selfish way. My thing keeps going down. Am I noticing that? I may have to... I think it's this one. Isn't it? Oh yeah, that one is loose. There we go. Got it. So, we fail. We fail from this privileged place that included caring and stewarding God's creation. We fail from our intimate place with God in relationship. And a lot of things have come with that. That falling like fear, like anxiety, like relational distance, even to the point of hurting one another, like anger, even to the point of killing one another. That's been our plight. We've struggled to know God. We've struggled to know ourselves. And we've struggled to know each other. That's the context. It's broken. And as we proceed in Scripture, early on we see that God called a man out of this broken kind of context. A man named Abraham. Abraham and his wife Sarah. He promised Abraham that he would bring out of him, out of them, a people. A unique people living in a unique relationship with God. But not just with God. Listen to what he says to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. and You will be a people. He says, Abraham, look at the sky. Try counting the stars. The people that are going to come from you will outnumber those stars. He says, I'm going to bless you. You'll become a people. And this people are to be a blessing to all peoples. God's vision has not fundamentally changed from creation. He has a vision of partnering with men and women stewardship over his creation. Here in this, in this call to Abraham, something maybe we would say new is happening. It's taking a step forward. The call is not just caring for creation. Did you catch it? Through you I will bless all peoples, all nations. Now the stewardship is including other men, other peoples, other nations. Don't miss this. It's this people that came from Abraham that we've been tracking in Exodus. There are people, ironically, who've been enslaved for 430 years in Egypt. They've been living in scarcity. They've been living under the rule of a wicked, a series of wicked pharaohs. That's been their plight. Now they've been delivered. They've exited, exodus, out of Egypt. They're experiencing political freedom for the first time in their lives. If you're not used to political freedom, that's a new thing. It may be difficult to learn how to live in that place of freedom. They're now on a journey to a promised land. And that's kind of their focus, but the reality, it's not really a land that God is so concerned about. It's a promised life that He has in mind with them, for them. And so that's the journey they're on. It's that life that captures the attention of our text today. In fact, it's that life that captures the, the attention, you could argue, for the whole Scripture. You could argue that it's that life that captures the, the reason Jesus came 
to begin with. So it's a big one. Exodus, journey to freedom. Our <clears throat> excuse me, quest has been to track with this people, this journey, and to observe, to query, most importantly, learn from them and learn their God because their God is our God as well. And hopefully move forward in our respective journeys as individual into freedom and as a people. How do we live freedom this freely? This people, they've exited Egypt and they're now caravanning in a vast desert. They're en route to this promised land. More importantly, they're en route to a life that God has in mind for them. So let's pick it up. Exodus 19 starts this way. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, so they've been out for a couple months here, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So, hello, desert of Sinai. By the way, the rest of the book of Exodus, as well as the next book in the Old Testament, as well as a significant part of the next book, is going to take place in this desert. Uh, if you're counting, if you're a nerd, 59 chapters are going to take place in the desert of Sinai. This is a critical part in the formation of God's people. We do well to pay attention to it. In the desert, the people are going to meet God. In a way they have not yet. They're going camping in the desert. How many of you are campers? Don't, don't, be, don't be ashamed. Maybe we got a handful of you. Yeah, we got some of you. So I think people of antiquity, like our Exodus people, I think they would find it fascinating that we like to go camping. Uh, they'd find it quite strange. We camp to get away, right, from the noise, from modernity, from commotion, traffic of our lives. We camp to get outdoors, to place ourselves in the middle of creation. We want to get into more underdeveloped places. We want to get in natural lands and waters of the earth. Ancient peoples, like the ones we're studying, they built structures to escape those things. The rigors and the threat that came from living outside much of the time. We plan to get outside. They camp to get inside as much as they can. Side note, we're going camping a little bit in the next four weeks. We're going to do a little mini-series. We're going to go off-road from Exodus. Our journey to freedom is going to be called Camping on Rock Hill for the next four weeks. We're going to camp out here and take a and, and pause and take a look at what is our vision, our core values, our beliefs, our, the way that we try to do life here and make decisions and serve our community and be a blessing. So look for that starting next week. George and I will be tag-teaming on that one. But God's people are camping, and as they start this excursion, they receive an invitation from God. Pick it up in verse 3. Moses went up to God, which meant he climbed the mountain. And the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to tell the people. Now, side note again, God's not speaking to an individual here. He is, but it's for people. This, this what we're about to hear is for a people. God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt 
How I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I hope that inspired some kind of woe out of you. Don't miss this. One of the most important things God says in the Old Testament. It's a proposal. Not unlike a wedding proposal. It's a proposal to the people through Moses. So let's pitch our tent here for a bit. And let's look at it. God begins by reminding them of their personal history with God. You've seen what I did for you. What I did to Egypt. How I carried you. How I brought you to myself. God stays brief here. He doesn't like detailed what he did. He doesn't chronicle it. He says, hey, remember this? Remember that when you crossed the Red Sea? Remember all those places? He has no need to do that. Why? They were there. It just happened a couple months earlier. You saw what I did for you. You know what I did for you. You experienced it. And God wants them to be clear that this relationship that he's going to begin to describe with incredible language has always been anchored in his initiative. You saw what I did for you. It's always been about God's grace. Grace is not new in the New Testament. It's always been God's grace. And it's good for us to remind ourselves of these words. You saw what I did for you. Question for you. What has God done for you? How would you answer that? When we find ourselves in challenging times, we're talking about this morning in our circle when, when we're like, metaphorically speaking, camping in the desert, it's good to remember what God has done for us. It's good to remember that the reason we're here was His initiative, not ours. Our history is a result of God's grace. Even the broken, painful parts, God was there with us. We need to recall and recount often what God has done for us. Grace. Burn it like jet fuel. It's always there for you. It's always available. What has God done for you? We could stop right there and just let it happen. Let you talk. But not today. And now God's going to get to the response He wants out of His initiative. He says, if you obey Me and keep My covenant, out of all nations, you will be My treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's a condition right here in the proposal. If, we'll come back to it in a minute. But God says that out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Do you hear that personal, even intimate language? Treasured? To treasure a people is to place supreme value on them. It's to be proud of them. It's to love them, to treasure. What do you treasure? Little kids have treasures, right? They carry around 
little treasures for you. Sometimes it's a, it's a little toy. Sometimes it's knowledge. Uh, Kenny came up to me this morning with a treasure. You know, she was doing some kind of advance. She started kindergarten this week. Some kind of advanced trick. I don't know what it was that she was schooling me on, but it was math, I think. And, but it was a treasure for her to, to be able to share that with someone. We treasure. We love what we treasure. God is saying, I carried you on eagle's wings because I treasured you. I brought you to myself because I treasured you. It's a way of God saying, I belong to you. I identify myself with you. I'm proud of you. Your picture's in my wallet. You're loved. Pretty amazing, isn't it? You're a treasured possession, he says. I don't just belong to you. You belong to me. You belong to me. You are mine. You're my possession. I am your Lord. I am your creator. I am your protector. I'm your sustainer. I'm your leader. I'm your guide. I'm your redeemer. I've delivered you. You belong to me. Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Now, it may sound a little bit like favoritism at first, like guys like showing favoritism to people, but that's not actually the case. Not in the way that we might respond to that. God's choosing a people, yes. But with that choice comes this tremendous, what He's about to say next, responsibility. Because God is about to entrust them with mission. Out of all nations, He says, you will be for Me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's an important, unique thing that God is saying here. It's the only time it's in the Old Testament. This phrase, kingdom of priests. The New Testament picks up on it. Several places. A kingdom of priests. To be part of a kingdom is to be part of something large. Something robust. Something important. Something meaningful. Something collaborative, something integrative, something rich, something kingly, something royal to be part of a kingdom. A kingdom of priests. Not just a kingdom. What an interesting thing to say, a kingdom of priests. The core function of a priest. Uh, Do some work on it yourself. We don't have time for me to cover. I'd, I'd encourage you, do a little work on what's a priest? What's a priest do? I thought about calling my friend Jay to see if I could borrow his collar this morning. He's, a, he's an Episcopalian priest, and, and I thought that'd be kind of cheesy. He wouldn't let me have it anyway, probably. But, but a, the, the core function of a priest is mediator. He goes between God and people. He's in the midst of, in the middle of, There's a relationship that priests have. She has a relationship with God and with the people among whom she lives. A kingdom of priests. Not only a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. A nation is an entity. It's a people. 
It's a collection. They have a collective identity. They have a collaborative vision, a nation. They're more than just a bunch of individuals who happen to find themselves in the same place at the same time. They're a nation. They're a people. Not just a nation. A holy nation. A holy nation. This phrase is also picked up in the New Testament. To be holy means to be set apart. To be different. To be distinct. To not be trying to simply blend into the culture. It's to be purposeful. To have intention. Israel becoming a holy nation. This will lie at the kind of the the essence of their camping in the desert. This was God's vision. To dwell among the people that He treasures. And them living under His rule in His kingdom as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you get that, you're getting a lot. God's vision is to dwell among a people He treasures. And they living under His rule as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So now back to the condition that if, God says, if you obey Me, if you keep My covenant, then if is an important word in our text here. It's important to understand that the if isn't tied to their being treasured by God. Don't get confused by the English translation. The if stands with kingdom of priests and holy nation. He's saying, God is saying to this people, I treasure you. You didn't deserve it. You don't earn it. I treasure you. I love you. If you disobey me, I treasure you. If you screw up and walk away from me, I treasure you. That's not changing. You're going to stay in my wallet. I'm going to brag on you. I'm going to love you. But he's saying this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, it's conditional on a specific kind of relationship that you and I have together. This condition of obedience, covenant keeping is tied to their mission. If they will live in obedience to God, if they will keep His covenant, which by the way, God hasn't given to them yet. That's the next chapter in Exodus. But as God's treasured possession, they will be for Him a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The condition is for, don't miss this, the sake of the nations. The if is for the sake of the nations. The whole nation's are mine. The whole earth is mine. But if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be for me among these nations a kingdom of priests and a holy people set apart. I want you to note that the people are given a choice. God is not forcing this obedience on them. Unlike the pharaohs who demanded servitude from them. If God demanded their obedience... Their obedience would actually be meaningless. There's choice here. God is saying, in light of all I have done for you, you are now invited to receive my rightful and loving lordship in your life. Not out of fear, 
but in love. Your obedience rests on the relationship of grace that's already been established. And so I invite you into this covenant relationship that's fueled by grace. See, God is granting, this is so cool, God is granting dignity to a people that has known nothing of dignity from anywhere else for 430 years. They've served the Pharaoh. The only dignity they could find is that which existed within them. And God is granting them dignity by giving them the freedom to choose. Freedom. So, they want to obey this. Verse 7. Moses summons the elders of the people and set before him all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all respond together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The people are determined to meet the condition. We will obey. So because we have the privilege of history and being here 3,500 years later or whatever it is, we can evaluate how did they do with their commitment? Did they live up to it? Well, no. They did not. Even a casual observer of the Old Testament answers that question. There were exceptional exceptions. Is that, uh, sorry English majors. There were shining moments in their history. But the reality is their lips professed loyalty and their lives betrayed that loyalty over and over again. At times they were motivated to be kingdom of priests and holy nation, usually when they were in trouble. They were motivated. Most often they chased their own ambitions, even to the point of becoming a great nation. They became a great nation for about 300 years. But they consistently failed to fulfill this vision for obedience, to be a kingdom of priests to the nations, to be a holy nation among them. They failed to be a blessing. So what can we learn from them? Well, I want to take us forward in the history of God dealing with His people. I want to take us forward 1,500 years to a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a small little struggling house church in Rome. This people is living under the rule of an oppressive regime, an emperor. And Peter says this to this little band of Christ followers. You're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Did you, did you catch the parallel? Peter's using this passage to, to quote. He wants to, these Roman followers to say, guess what? You are fulfilling the vision at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
There's a profound distinction, though, you've got to see in what Peter says. In the Exodus text, God identifies his people as his treasured possession and then invites him to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if, don't forget the if, they will obey him. Here it's different. Peter is not just naming these believers and Jesus has chosen and belonging to God. They certainly have been and they certainly are. But he's also naming them, you might even say coronating them as royal, kingly priests. He's not asking them to be so. He's saying they are so. The if is vacant here. There's no if. He's declaring them, you are a holy nation. You are a kingdom of priests. Now certainly there's an expectation, there's an ethical imperative in here to act like a holy nation in a kingdom of priests, but that's not what Peter's doing. He's removed the if. He's not asking them to be holy. He's telling them that they are. It's pretty fascinating. There's no condition. At Mount Sinai, there's an if in the covenant. Here in the church, the if has become a that. T-H-A-T. Listen again, you're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. Here we go. That. That. You might declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful life. See, he's, he's talking about our who. You are these things. And then the who leads to that. That your mission that was contingent on your obedience. It's now, church, wrapped up in your identity. Mission. That you might be a kingdom of priests for the nations. That you might be in the midst of, among, interceding for, representing God in the places of your relational environments. Your neighborhoods, your workplaces, the places God sends you. The if is gone. Peter's confident of it. The if is gone. It's become a that for the church. What changed? Did God just get tired of the if? Nobody could meet it? I want to ask that question in a little bit of a strange way. It's at the, it's at the Last Supper. We, we celebrate communion about once a month. And something Jesus said at that very first communion, I think it has a little clue in it. I decided to go with this way. Go to that next one. So Jesus is ho- holding up the cup at the Lord's Supper. If you're, if you're new to the faith, uh, Jesus did this meal where the bread and the wine represented what he was about to do on the cross. And, If you have questions about that, ask someone around you. But Jesus holds up the cup. And he says, this cup is what? Say it. The new covenant. What did the cup represent? His blood. This is the new covenant. My blood is the new covenant. Poured out for you. See, that's where the identity is anchored. The if is not, if you obey me, you will do this. It's you belong to me. The if has become a that. That you may declare the praises 
Christ changed everything. He brought a new covenant. He came announcing the arrival of a kingdom. He served as our great high priest. He's our mediator who offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. And then, then, he birthed a people. He sustains them and fills them and makes them holy, this people. Not because of their obedience, but because of their righteousness now given to them, poured out on the cross. If that's blowing your head, welcome to the boat. His initiative, His grace. So now we are called out of our darkness into His light. Why? To declare His praise among the nations. So our identity is now yet the core treasured possession. Can't change that. But now part of our identity is this. It's at the core. Kingdom of priests. Holy nation. This is who we are, friends. The only question is, is will we live in faithful obedience to that? And the answer is, not always. Because we're still broken. But our identity hasn't changed. So this is a game changer. This is a game changer. I hope it will seep in for you. Our identity is for the sake of the nations. We've been birthed into the new covenant by Jesus' blood. So we are now for Him. God's vision all along. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. A holy nation. To declare His praise to make Him known. That's our that. Memorize that that. I want to close with one more passage. It's in the end of the book of Revelation. The last book. Revelation looks forward with a lot of figurative speech to what's to come. But I specifically want us to hear a song. It's being sung to Christ by a group of elders. It's a new song. It says, they sang a song saying, you are worthy, they sing to Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals because you are slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And those you have purchased, you're seeing it already, you have what? Made them. Created in them. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Let's pray together. Let me while the, while the band comes up, let's just let's just hang out here for a minute and just and just at least try to start doing business with kind of the so what, you know, and Maybe you're not even ready for the so what yet. Maybe you just need to sit with, with the reality of what God has spoken in His Word. And, but like it, this has such profound 
implications for our lives. For many of you, it's not new. You've heard this before in different ways, perhaps. But what does it mean? It, it means your life is as a priest for God, for the sake of others. He's calling you to be a distinct follower of Jesus so that you might declare His praises among the people you live. It, it means that in your everyday ordinary lives, which is what God is after, He's not really interested, I don't think, in supercharging your life. I think He's interested in coming leading you in your ordinary life with its pain and with its trouble. And sometimes He takes us out of those things and thank God when He does. We should ask for it. But He's calling us to be kingdom of priests, often priests who are limping, priests who are hurting. It's our identity. It's not something we have to like live up to. It's just simply who we are. He's made us. It means that in our, like, our CLCs, our life groups, that there's a grander vision that we live for others' sake. We're not, we're not there to be a happy, holy huddle. God grants us the beauty and richness of community together. And that, that's the beautiful thing about the church. It's not either or. We experience the richness of community but we, but we understand what our purpose is. We understand what our that is. It's not for us. It's for others. So we discover that same vision that God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Has God blessed you? What has He done for you? And then He's saying that you might bless all nations on the earth. That's a robust vision. The reality is none of us do that alone. We do that together. We do it in our little corner, in our enclaves of where we have influence. The people that we can love and serve and point to Christ with our lives and our words. That's what it means. How does it play out for your life specifically? Well, that's, that's the work that you have, must do. I can't tell you that, exactly what it looks like. But it is your identity so to act contrary to that, is that contrary to your identity? That's our application. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would, your Holy Spirit would speak out of this critical text um, that's so much more than words. These are on paper. These are words of life that you spoke to your people. And now you speak to the church and we find ourselves among that group. Father, God, help us be that. Help us to be a kingdom of priests. Help us to live that way. Help us to be what you made us to be. Help us to not be about ourselves. Help us declare your praises because you treasure people. Break our hearts for them, God. Help us to learn how to live this in our regular lives in our ordinary lives, in our quiet lives, in our life together that we enjoy so richly. 
make this our story, God. We don't want to be like Israel. God, I don't want to miss it. We know we're not going to do it perfectly, but we want in on this. Would your grace flow to us abundantly so that we might? God, we're getting ready to get new people around. Perhaps we have people in our relational environments right now who are not in relationship with you. God, would you help us to be that priest for them, with them, among them? Help us to represent you as distinct people. Be with us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.